Amen and good morning. Welcome once again to Redeemer. Uh, we want to invite you right now to open up your copy of God's Word, whether you, it's in an in a analog Bible or you brought some digital interface on your, your device. Uh, we want to encourage you to open it up. And today you're going to want to keep your hand right there in Genesis 24. Of course, if you're using the YouVersion Bible app, you can simply go down to the bottom right-hand side, hit the More function, and then events uh, on that menu that pops up. And you should be able to geolocate right here to Redeemer Baptist Church and have all of today's message notes. You can hit the save button and you'll have all of today's text uh, as we continue our series that we've entitled Sojourn, a study of the life of Abraham, where we're taking a look at this big middle section of the book of Genesis. Now, we're almost done with our study of the life of Abraham. And today, we're going to take a look at uh, 67 verses. Now, normally, you guys know, I would read the entire passage before we go through it together. But there are 67 verses here. And it's a story that I think is familiar to some of you. If you're not familiar with it, I think it'll be easy enough for you to follow along. And we're going to go through all of that passage together today, okay? So with knowing that there's 67 verses, we're not going to do all of it, uh, reading it all out loud here at the beginning. But we do want to remind you of some context of where we are at. So last week, you remember we were looking at how Abraham was mourning the death of his wife, Sarah, right? And, and we saw how believers are called throughout this. We're, we're seeing how believers are called to respond to life in faith. And that's true, especially when we face the reality of death, right? In the midst of suffering. And so we saw these principles last week. We, we were reminded that death is inevitable and mourning is normal and life is short and our stay here is temporary and, and that only some investments last. And God alone is completely trustworthy in both life and death. And, and you know, I, I preached that sermon last week and, and we didn't know um, that, that we, our family, would be mourning this week. Um, we, we lost our precious uh, Victoria, our puppy, this week that we've had with us for 11 years since our girls were really small. And, and uh, Maggie calls our pets our fur family, and, and I like that. Uh, and, and so, you know, in a small way, we, we didn't know that we would be having to live out and ask ourselves, do we believe and live out this reality in the midst of our pain, you know, the Bible is not here for you and I to live out in theory, but in reality, right? It's for us to engage with and to, to trust God in. So those were some of the principles we saw last week. Now, today we're going to see as Abraham's life is drawing to a close as an older man, we're going to see that we are called as a people of faith to enact and trust God's promises, right? And we're called to trust God's promises in specific ways. So we're going to look at three major characters in the passage today. We're going to see how each of us is called out of our faith to act like Abraham, how to obey like Abraham's servant, how we are called to receive the work of God and his promises, even when we don't understand it, like Rebecca. And then we'll see how all of that comes together to remind us that as people of faith, we're to trust in God's ongoing redemptive work and his grace in all of life. So that'll be our outline for today. You know, when we talk about having faith that acts like Abraham, Scripture reminds us, we, we saw it earlier in the Scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 11. And, you know, over and over again, Romans chapter 5, multiple places, Abraham is lifted up to us and, and we're encouraged to enact a life that looks like the life of Abraham. So as we start in Genesis uh, chapter 24 today, the first place thing we need to remember is this, that blessing should not lead us to a place of passivity. Okay? And here's why we can take a look at that. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And, and by now, he's 140 years old. So he is old, right? And 
and you know, we retire at like 65, right? 55 if you got a good government job or a good company job or something like that, right? Abraham's 140. And I want you to see that he is not coasting into eternity. He's not sitting back and saying that the rest of his life should be some luxury cruise or some perpetual golf game. He's not traveling around in a motorhome trying to tour the United States, trying to get in his final, uh, uh, you know, vacations, right? Abraham understands he is a steward of God's promises. He's there on a mission, He's 140 years old, and he is on a mission. He may be being blessed by God. That's his state, but it doesn't lead him to a place of passivity. So right away, I just want to ask you this before we go any farther. Is your picture of God's blessing focused on the idea that if God blesses me, it means I just get to sleep in every morning? I get to do nothing. Because that's not Abraham's picture, and that's not where his faith leads him. His faith doesn't lead him to passivity. Rather, his faith leads him to action. He acts in pursuit of greater fulfillment of God's promises. So, keep on reading, right? Look at Genesis 24, verses 2 and 3. What do you see? Abraham calls his servant, the head of his household, to him, and he says, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will go to my kindred, country and my kindred and take for my, a wife for my son Isaac. Abraham understands his life is drawing to a close and he has a mission that he is still to fulfill. That his life wasn't about himself. It was about God fulfilling his promises to create a people for himself. Isaac is now nearly 40 years old or right at 40 years old and he doesn't have a wife. Abraham says the mission's not done. This is the child of the promise. He needs a wife in order for God's promises to come true. And he understands that he's not to sit around being passive about it, but he's to enact and engage in God's promises. So he's pursuing the promise of God. He understands, hey, my job is to make sure that as far as my responsibility goes, I've done what I'm supposed to do. So he calls his servant, says, I want you to go back to Mesopotamia. Remember, that's like 1,400 miles away. 1,400 miles away. I want you to go back there and I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac. Now, in the midst of this, Abraham's also going to protect the promise and work of God. God's promised Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 15. God said, I'm going to call you out of your land. I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to give you a son. And you're going to have countless offspring, as many as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. But it's through the child of the promise, not through Ishmael, not through your other children that you're going to have. It's through Isaac through Sarah, that you're going to have a land and an offspring, and you're going to be a people that are my people to bless the world. Now, that's the promise, right? So Abraham's not just acting to go get the promise in a sense, but he's acting to protect the promise. Notice the instructions. If you look in verse 3, that he gives to his servant. In verse 3, he says, Swear to me that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites amongst whom I dwell. Abraham understood that the people of God were not to be worshiping pagan idols, he knew what it meant. He had been an idol worshiper. And so he said, no, my son Isaac needs a wife from, not from these idol worshiping Canaanites. She need, he needs a different kind of, of wife. So then in verses 5 and 6, he continues. He, the servant says, um, maybe you're sending me all the way to Mesopotamia. I find a woman, but she won't come back here. She, she doesn't want to be part of this. And so, uh, should I take your son, Isaac, back to Mesopotamia? What's Abraham's response to that? See to it that you do not take my son back there. Why? Because the promise isn't back there. The promise isn't back where he used to live. 
The promise is not back in the, in the land where his family. Abraham had now spent 140 years of his life, half of which at this point he has spent wandering, following God in the land of the promise. He says, don't take Isaac back there. In fact, if you keep reading, and down in verse 8, he says this, the one, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath, only you must not take my son back there. Don't go back to Mesopotamia. All right? So why is he saying that? He's protecting the work and promise of God. So faith acts and it protects those promises because faith leads us to trust in the fact that God is at work in the right now to fulfill his plan and his promises. Do you believe that? That God today, right now, is still fulfilling the promise that he gave Abraham? That he's calling forth a people to live a life of blessing to the world through the good news of Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ? Because if you don't believe that, and you and I don't act like that in our lives right now, that God is at work, we're not acting out of faith. We may be acting out of fear or frustration or foolishness. There are a lot of motivations for us. But Abraham understood that God was still at work. Abraham hasn't had any recent theophanies. He hasn't had any encounters with God uh, that are directly recorded in Scripture that are are personal and up close since he uh, brought Isaac up onto that mountain at Mount Moriah and laid him on the altar. And God said, stop, and I'm going to make that promise anew and afresh to him. You've not withheld your son. I'm going to give you a substitute lamb, right? We looked at that a few weeks ago. But here's Abraham's fundamental belief. 25, 27 years have passed since that day on Mount Moriah. And here's what Abraham says. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. What's Abraham's fundamental belief? That the God who made the promise is enacting the promise and carrying God's people to the places they need to be so they can be part of the promise that God has made. Do you believe that? Do you live your life like God is not dead, but actually alive at work in your life? Years ago, when my wife and I served with the International Mission Board, Dr. Jerry Rankin, who was the the head of the International Mission Board at the time, was preaching a message, and he talked about the God who goes before you. And I just want to ask you, do you believe that? That the God of the universe is at work going into your place before you go there? Into your neighborhood? Do you think you're the only work of God in, in that reality? Or do you believe God's at work even when you can't see it? One reason believers never act to bring forth the reality of the promises of God in this world is because truthfully, we don't actually believe God is at work. Abraham sends his servant 1,500 miles away across vast deserts on an incredibly dangerous and risky journey to go get a wife for his son because he believes that God's at work. And brothers and sisters, you and I will stay stuck in passivity or frozen by the possibility that we might not be making the right choices because we actually don't trust the sovereignty of God because we also don't believe that God's at work. So I want to ask you again, what's keeping you from sharing the gospel with your neighbors? Serving somebody in love when you don't see a good response. What keeps you muddled in all of your everydayness?
instead of acting in faith? Is it because you don't know or believe God's promises? Maybe. Or maybe it's just because you don't actually believe that God's at work in acting those promises. Abraham's actions follow the fact that he doesn't have a passive God. He understands it's not dependent on him. Notice he told the servant, listen, if, if the woman doesn't come back, don't take Isaac back there. I know that part for sure. He doesn't have the outcome secured, but he knows God goes ahead of him. All right? So faith acts like Abraham, but faith also leads us to obey like Abraham's servant who's kind of the main character, this unnamed person who we get to spend about 40-something verses primarily focused on, his name is never told to us. He's the person we have a whole chapter of the Bible about, and we don't even know his name, right? He's just simply Abraham's servant. He's a servant of the man of faith. And we'll see how that ties into the reality of how God is at work in this world. But folks, do you obey the mission of God even if it doesn't lead you to recognition? What if obeying Jesus means nobody will ever know your name? Do you still obey? Do you do what God tells you to do? Well, let's take a look at some of the attributes of Abraham's servant as we just continue. Notice Abraham's servant gets this mission. He's the most senior servant in the household. We know that. And he makes a commitment to Abraham. Sometimes people of faith get frozen by the idea that faith means that you sit there passively and you don't make any commitments because you aren't sure where God is at work. Years ago, a, a person came to Pastor Erwin McManus down in LA and they said to him, you know, Pastor, I have these great options in front of me. I have a choice here, a choice here, a choice here of what I can do with my career, my life. The person was very talented. Pastor Irwin tried to give the person wise counsel, asked them if they had prayed through it, talked through all these different things. And all of the options were good. None of them were unbiblical. They were all good and godly things. And so finally, Erwin said, here's what you do. Pick one. And the guy says, oh, I have too much respect for the sovereignty of God to just do that. And Pastor Erwin said, I have too much respect for the sovereignty of God to believe that if you are trying to follow him in obedience and faith, that he's going to let you make the wrong, mis uh, the wrong choice. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Faith leads us to commit to certain actions, right? Commit to a church. Commit in, your, in, in, in a relationship with somebody that's discipling you. Yes, you don't know what might happen six months from now, but that's not the point. You're not supposed to know. Faith leads us to commit because we believe God is at work. So he swears an oath to his master, right? He has that weird uh, Old Testament ritual. He puts his hand under Abraham's thigh and he swears to him that he will carry out the mission. Now, folks, can I just point out to you, it's like 1,400, 1,500 miles at least to Abraham's hometown across a desert filled with different kinds of things that could happen to him from natural disasters. He's got to have a, a camel train of 10 camels and everything else. Uh, he could be robbed. He's carrying high wealth jewelry with him on this mission, okay? He can't even guarantee that he'll come back, let alone bring a wife back, but it doesn't stop him from committing. Because faith leads us to make commitments knowing that God is sovereign. And faith leads us to sojourn. That's the whole point of this series. God's leading us out into places that we may not know where we're going. We don't know if Abraham's servant had been with him, but it's highly unlikely. Remember how old Abraham is at this point? 140. This guy is not a patriarch. It's not likely that he came from Abraham's hometown of Mesopotamia with him. He may have been with him as a young man through the last few decades. He's certainly the most senior servant in the household, but the servant takes 10 of his master's camels and he departs and he takes all sorts of choice gifts from his master and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, something Old Testament scholars will point out to us here. Most of that detail you and I don't need to know. In fact, we don't need a sentence that has all those verbs in it. It could just say, and so Abraham's servant obeyed 
Abraham's servant went to Mesopotamia. So why did the biblical authors think it's important to detail out all of that? To say, he takes 10 of his camels, he departs, he takes all of these gifts, he arises, and he goes. There's too many extraneous verbs. And the scholars tell us that what the biblical author is trying to teach us here is this. Each of these actions required deliberate choices. The servant has to make a plan. You don't just take up your, this, this mission and not make a plan, right? He has to pack supplies with 10 camels. He has to bring the gifts. What of my master's stuff will prove to my master's family that he has sufficient wealth to care for a bride that I can bring her across this desert? There has to be enough supplies for the mission. He has to make a choice to get up and actually do it. And I tell you, I've been a pastor long enough to know that lots of people make commitments in worship services. And by Monday morning, those commitments are gone. Because it takes work. <laughs> you going to get up tomorrow morning and read your Bible because you haven't been reading it in three months? Not if you don't have a plan. You won't be reading it by the end of the week. Not if you don't have a plan. Not unless you've got steps that you're going to take and then you have the commitment to actually carry it out. That's what I'm giving you as an example to point out that faith leads us to actually take all of the steps that we need to do it. Now, you're not doing it on your own, right? Faith leads us into a place of prayer. It should lead you to realize you can't do it on your own, right? You can cry out, God, give me the wisdom. God, give me the direction. God, give me success. And that's what we see the servant doing in verse 12, right? Look at verse 12. He's made it all the way across the desert. He's come to the hometown of Abraham. He's parked by the community well. And here's what he prays. Oh, Lord, God of my master, and that's O Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He asks nothing for himself and everything for the mission. God, once again, show us that you love us. God, once again, grant me success today. Today is the day that this whole mission has been about. It may have taken as much as two or three months to make this journey. And here he is, and he says, today, today, God, we need you to grant us success. He cries out to the God of Abraham, right? Because he's expecting God to act. Where did he learn that from? From Abraham, right? We just saw that. He's expecting God to do something. Are there things you won't pray because you don't actually believe God will do something? He prays crazy prayers because he's expecting God to act. Right now, today, this is the mission. Abraham said, God said this, I believe it, I'm doing it. So he goes, <laughs> right? Because he expects God to act. And so you look, keep reading. Look at verse 14. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please light down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Wow. Do you have that kind of confidence in God? So God, here's the way it's going to work. There's a well. I'm thirsty. My camels are thirsty. We're just going to take it down to something really basic. The woman that comes and offers us water. Make her be the one. Now, we've got a number of folks in our church here that have met online, right? And, uh, and I've, I've walked a journey here with a couple of you through this uh, process. And, and Theo, how many, how many uh, ladies did you bounce around on? It, more than one or two, as I recall, on those internet profiles, looking around to see if God was at work in one of those ladies' lives, right? Now, praise God, you found one right here, you know, <laughs> right? 
But, but it took a little bit more work, is my point, right? But this servant is so confident that God's at work. He's like, let the first one that comes up and says, I'll water the camels, that's her. What? He believes God is at work. And he's looking, folks. He's looking to see where God is at work. Henry Blackaby says this is such a key issue in our Christian faith and our growth. The idea that we as Christians are not supposed to be looking to where where we can just be at work, but where God is at work. And that's what he's looking for. God, I want to find the person that you're at work in their life. So go to verses 15 and 16. Keep going through this passage. And you'll say, look at this. Before he had finished speaking. Can you imagine? Before he finishes his prayer. Behold. Look. Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, (laughs) Isaac's second cousin, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. She happens to be hot, beautiful. Uh, The young woman was very attractive is the way the ESV says it. The, the, the Hebrew's a little more graphic. She is beautiful and comely in form, might be a way to put that. So he's like, oh, here comes a beautiful young woman, a maiden whom no one had known. She's a virgin. That's important to, pure, to main sure, maintain the reality that this bloodline that is from Abraham to Isaac and to the promised children will be only from that bloodline, Right? Okay, so she's had no children. She's had no sexual relations. She went down to the spring and fills her her jar and she comes up. And what's he doing? The man's still looking. He's looking at her, watching her the whole time. And the, the deliberate graphic detail, do you feel like this is a narrative, like you're watching this in a movie? The man's gazing at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I want to ask you this week, are there things that God's wanting you to look and see where he's at work? In your neighborhood, in your friendships, in your family? Are we missing out on what God is doing because we're not even looking for it? You know, if you're going to look for it, you have to relate. <laughs> You have to connect with people. Because where God is at work is amongst people. And that's what Abraham's servant does. He's relating. He eagerly looks to see where God may be at work in the lives of other people, right? He's looking to see, is is God at work in the life of this young woman? So what does he do? He runs to her. By the way, dudes traveled like two, three months across the desert He's so eager to see where God's at work. He runs to this young woman and he says to her, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she says, drink my Lord. It's not just politeness. She's exhibiting something about her character. She didn't go to the well to water his camels or give him water. She went to the well to get water for her family. Notice how she's understanding here right away. Something is happening. She lets down the water jar upon her hand and gives him a drink. And when she finishes giving him a drink, she says, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Um, I love how this scholar from Berkeley points out the fact. He's like, do you know how much water 10 camels that have crossed the desert drink? This is not like, you know, even a gallon jug here or, you know, no. This is a lot of water. Camels consume large amounts of water. They can go days, even weeks without drinking. But when they drink, they thirsty. Okay? (laughs) 
So she is watering back and forth, back and forth. She is running around doing this. And so he's looking and seeing what God is, is doing. He's talking to her. He's connecting her. And he's inquiring. He's asking her questions. If you want to know where God's at work, get into people's lives. Talk to them about what's happening to them. Ask them questions. He asks her questions. He's like, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Now, that's a bit presumptuous. Two key questions. Are you connected to my family? Are you the person that God's really been at work at? And will you receive the work of God? Will you receive the work of God or not? You know, when we approach people, we need to know who they are and whether or not they're open to the work of God in their life. And you do that by talking to people and asking them questions. She answers, by the way, right? <laughs> she says, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Right? So what's the right response of a person of faith when you see God at work in somebody else's life? Worship. Right? We exist for God's glory, people. <laughs> We exist to praise God. So faith leads us to worship and recognize God's work. And so the response at seeing God's work is to worship. And look at what the servant does. This is amazing, right? Look in verses 26 and 27. The man, his response to finding out who Rebecca is, is to bow his head and worship the Lord. His heart is overflowing. God's at work. God's at work. He's been faithful to my master. God has shown steadfast love to Abraham. God is at work. He bows his head and he leads him to worship. And he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. God is who he said he is. Everything Abraham's taught me about him, he's that. And then he says, and, and as for me, by the way, this is very interesting. He begins to refer to himself. He's like, I get caught up in the wave of grace that Abraham got. Isn't that interesting? As for me, the Lord has led me in the way. Wow. Folks, sometimes we're so caught up and being jealous and envious of what God's doing in somebody else's life, that what we end up doing is missing out on the wave of God's gracious work because we're not the main character. But Abraham's servant gets the blessing of seeing God at work. By the way, that pattern of worship continues when he goes to Rebecca's home and has this negotiation with her brother Laban and, and uh, her father Bethuel and everything else, his response to the fact that they agree to this young lady coming and being Isaac's wife is to worship. He bows himself all the way down to the earth. He throws himself on the ground in worship of the living God. Have you seen God at work in your life? in such a way that it would lead you to worship God? If not, can I suggest that maybe it's because you're not in the business of telling other people what God is doing. Faith is never silent. It is always in the business of telling other people what God is doing, right? That's what the servant does. Right? He tells Rebecca first, and then he says to Laban, Rachel's brother, I am Abraham's servant. Now, remember, Abraham left home about 65, or, uh, uh, 65 years before this. He's been gone a long time. All right? And so now he says, I'm Abraham's servant. The family's going to be shocked. We haven't heard from Abraham. We didn't get an email or a text or anything. 
I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord, the Lord has greatly blessed my master. He has become great. He has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants, female servants, camels and donkeys. He says, I am a, well, my, my master is a wealthy and powerful man. God is at work in the life of my master. Then he goes on to say, here's the story. And, and he repeats everything that just happened. It's one of the most unique passages in the Old Testament because you have this long description, narrative description of what happened, how he came to the well, and now the servant recounts it, and we have that whole story. But notice how he doesn't miss out on the fact that God is at work. I came to the spring today. I said, oh, Lord... Uh, the God of my master Abraham, if you, now you are prospering the way that I go, go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink and will say to me, drink and I'll draw from your camel's alpha. Also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Do you catch what he's doing? He's telling the story of God being at work. Faith leads us to tell other people what God is doing. This week, a friend of mine who has been wandering far from the faith for quite a while contacted me and said, I just, I'm not at peace. And I said, of course you're not at peace. God has chosen you. You are his child and you are not acting like it. Why would he leave you alone? My friend needed to be told that God was at work. Are there people you need to tell that God is at work in their lives, that God is in the business of drawing them to himself? Do you need to remind them with details of the story of the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you need to remind them of the moments of their salvation? Every one of us needs that from time to time. You know, I, I praise God for my wife. You know, when, sometimes when I'm struggling, I'm like, there's something I know the Lord wants me to do and I don't really want to do it or maybe I just feel like giving up. I don't want to endure anymore. And I love how my wife says to me, she says, Chris, that choice was made when you and I were eight years old because both of us professed faith when we were eight. She reminds me, that commitment was done. God was at work in your life back then. Choice is over. You're already on a path, dude. <laughs> I need somebody to remind me that God is at work. And you and I need to be reminded how much more do lost people, believers who are struggling, need to be reminded that God is at work. Is there somebody this week you need to go and say, I see Jesus at work in your life in this way? Is there somebody you need to do that? Maybe you just need to go share what God's doing in your life. Hey, this is what God's doing. This is how God's teaching me. This is how God's talking to me. But faith leads us to tell other people what God is doing. That is part of our mission, right? Now, one last lesson we can draw from the servant here. Faith always prioritizes the mission and pursues its completion. It prioritizes the mission and pursues its completion. Um, when we take a look here at verse 33, the food gets set before him. He gets invited into, into Laban's house and they, 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 he he's, takes out the jewelry. He puts the nose ring into Rebecca's nose and puts bracelets on her arms and she comes back. We'll take a look at that in just a second. But he gets invited into Laban's house and they make an elaborate feast for him. And the food is set before him, but he says, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. Why? Because he's got a mission that matters more to him than eating. By the way, you want to know an odd parallel to this? If you flip in your Bibles to John chapter 4, there's another person who says... I have food to eat that you don't know about. Who prioritizes the work of the kingdom 
more than meeting his own needs. There are so many of us that are so busy trying to get ourselves fed, get ourselves comfortable, get ourselves out of pain, rather than prioritizing the mission. This man has traveled over a thousand miles on a perilous journey. He's certainly entitled to a little barbecue. But he says, my mission isn't done. I'm not even going to eat until I tell you what God's doing. Now, if you keep reading, you'll see that this pattern continues. He tells the whole story of what God's been doing. We just read it. Look in verse 49. He says, If you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, if God's at work in your life, in the same way that God has been at work in the life of my, my master Abraham, if you're going to show the love that can only come from God, then tell me. But if not, tell me that also so that I know which way to go. Now, folks, can I just point out to you again, it would make more sense to eat the meal first before you insist on a decision here, right? This is, not, this is you know, eat the barbecue and then get them to the tough decision, right? But that's not what he does. The man still hasn't eaten. The mission has priority, and the mission requires somebody else to make a choice. And sometimes we are so unwilling to get to the place where we challenge other people as to what they're going to believe and what they're going to do and how they're going to act. But folks, that is the gospel mission. Tell people about Jesus and His kingdom and lead them to a place where they make a decision. Jesus never shied away from making people get to the place of decision. Abraham's servant in faith understands a decision has to be made. He's done everything he can do. The mission is now handed over, and he wants to know whether or not God's at work in those people's lives. And he prioritizes that mission. By the way, they say yes, right? Which we'll see here in just a second. But... He still doesn't fail to prioritize the mission. Keep reading. Go down to verse 54. They feast that night, celebrate. Okay, he finally gets his barbecue, which is good. And he says, next morning. The very next morning, he says, send me away to my master. Don't, don't you think you would be entitled to a little vacation? <laughs> a little break? He says, send me away. Her brother and her mother say, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after that she may go. They're appealing to the fact that normal wedding feasts would last at least 10 days to two weeks. They're like, let us have a normal wedding feast. Let us have the normal things. He says, no, no, no. There is a higher priority mission here. He says, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Don't stop me from fulfilling the mission God has given me. Wow. Wow. Send me away that I may go to my master. Do you have the kind of faith that leads you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or do you have the kind of faith is all about yourself, actually, and not about the master's mission. Because that's no real faith at all. All right, we've seen that we are to have faith and act like Abraham. We're to obey uh, like Abraham's servant, the unrecognized guy. But we can see that faith is in the business of receiving also, like Rebecca. You know, we don't have a ton of time here. But just go back through this passage, now looking for all the key points where Rebecca is a key figure. It starts with the fact that she's in the business of serving. She's serving in ordinary ways. Many of us are looking for big moments in our lives. But Rebecca's moment comes not simply through her beauty and not through her virginity, but it comes through service. Did you notice that? 
that her opportunity to be part of God's promise came through her serving in ordinary ways? Go back to verse 20. What is it that she's doing? She's out there serving her family by getting water. That's an ordinary thing. And then she grabs up water and serves the man. She doesn't know that this is God's emissary, that something special is happening. She, she empties her water jar into the trough and she's feeding the camels, or, or watering the camels, I should say. This is an ordinary task. And by the way, if you've ever been around camels, they're disgusting creatures. They're not polite creatures or nice creatures. They're not smell good creatures. And she's watering them. When she finds out the man needs a home or a place to stay that night, she offers ordinary hospitality. The intercept of faith and God's work is so often found at the place of service. Many people say, I don't want to serve God until I get a big mission, a big title, a big role. I'm going to do big things for God. Rebecca begins to understand her story in the place of service. Maybe we need to receive that like Rebecca did. And then she recognizes that God is at work. Something is different about this guy, right? I mean, he pulls out all this fancy jewelry once she tells him who she belongs to and where her family is. And so she does something. She, she runs and tells. Oh, there's somebody else telling. She runs and tells her family, um, something weird is happening. I was just doing the water thing, the camels and everything else. And then this guy whips out jewelry that's worth more than probably my entire household. And he's out there worshiping, which is kind of weird. She runs and tells her household, whatever it was that she told her brother and her father was enough to lead them to say this. Look in verse 50. This thing has come from the Lord. It's come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son. As the Lord has spoken. Rebecca is in a place of service. And what happens is that God is moving and she goes and tells people, I see God at work. And her family recognizes that this is a work of God when they hear the testimony of the servant. And then Rebecca has to do something else. Sometimes we see God so clearly at work and then we go, no, thank you. No, thank you very much. We're not willing to accept the place of God's work because it's not part of our plan. Some of you know my testimony. You know I had no plan whatsoever to pastor. Some of you have had similar experiences in your life where you had one plan and what you realized was that was not the plan that God had for your life. Rebecca has a choice to receive a plan that is not her own. There's no way in the world that she had a dream that she would end up being transported 1,500 miles away to be married to a second cousin she's never met. That's not her dream. But it is the work of God. I want to ask you, what is it that God's telling you? Is his plan, and you need to accept it, even if it's scary or difficult, something you don't really want to do, you may not want to prioritize. They call Rebecca in, and this is the most amazing thing. Remember, they haven't even had dinner. And this girl likely somewhere between 15 and 20 years old, is asked, will you travel to go meet a man you've never met and be married to him? What's her response? I will go. God's at work. God's at work. Brothers and sisters, faith always leads us to a place of surrender. 
If your faith has not cost you something, it's not likely genuine or certainly it's not very deep. Faith leads us to a place of surrender to God's plan. Look in verses 62 and 65 down there at the end. This is the culmination of the, the, the whole story. They travel back across the desert. Isaac has moved his tent actually from Bir Laharoi to the Negev. He's out on the edge of the desert and he's meditating in the field. We get a quick glimpse of Isaac's character. He's an inward thinking kind of guy. And he lifts up his eyes and he sees there are camels coming. And Rebecca lifts up her eyes and sees a man in the field. And she asked the the servant, who is that man? And the servant says, it's my master. And then in such a strange twist, she veils herself. Why? Because it's the act of a bride who recognizes her husband is coming. It's an act of surrender. From that moment on, there's no more choice. Her life is intertwined with Isaac. She knows nothing about his character. She knows nothing about who he is. She knows that she's there because God sent her there. Faith, brothers and sisters, leads us to a place of God's blessing and being a blessing to others. We've seen that principle in Genesis 12. We see it here again. As Rebecca rides off, her family pronounces this blessing over her. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. May your people rise up and be granted victory. Well, God's going to answer that in ways bigger than she could understand it. And then she becomes a blessing to a heartbroken man. Right? That's what happens. If you keep reading verse 67, the final verse there from this passage, Isaac brings her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and, she take, and he takes Rebekah, and she becomes his wife, and he loves her. If you keep reading over in Genesis 26, you'll see that they had an intimate, close, loving relationship there. Uh, And he loves her and he's comforted. She becomes a blessing to God's chosen by surrendering herself. Now, we've seen how faith leads us to act like Abraham, obey like Abraham's servant, and receive God's work like Rebecca, right? But quickly, let's take a look at how this applies in some really clear ways to you and me. Because faith is always going to lead us to a place of trust in God's bigger plan. A plan of redemptive grace. A plan of God's work. And can I just remind you that faith is not optional. The kind of faith we're talking about is not secondary. Okay? Without faith, you and I are condemned. All right? It's just true. If, if, if you think that faith is some sort of add-on to the religious experience, this kind of personal choice to trust God, that that's some secondary reality, Scripture would argue with you. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? Ephesians chapter 2 is going to say, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is a necessary appropriation of God's already and ongoing work. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The kind of faith we're talking about is not optional. It is essential to the reality of that. And it's based on this truth that God the Father is in the business of acting to bless all of us. Abraham acted and and enacted just what was within his power, but the God of the universe enacted a greater fulfillment. He's acting to bless you and me. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, when the fullness of time had come, millennia will pass. 1,600 years are going to pass before the promise that is made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Rebekah comes to fruition. 
But when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth His Son. He didn't just send a servant. He sent His Son, right? Born of a woman, born under the law, fully man, fully God, to redeem those who were under the law, to buy people who are sinners. Because none of us can keep the law of God. So that we can receive adoption as sons. So that we can be brought into God's family. And Jesus Jesus is the perfect servant, right? The one that who is always obedient in all the ways that we cannot be. One who always obeys his father while on mission to save the world. Jesus is in the business. You know, the, the servant of Abraham came and, and said, let me tell you how great Abraham is and what God has done in his life. Jesus comes and says, let me tell you what God is like. He comes to reveal the Father's glory, a greater glory. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we have seen His glory. Laban and Bethuel and Rebecca's family, they see a tiny glimpse of God's work, and it's enough to awe them. Jesus shows up, and we see all the glory of God, all of His fullness, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes not simply to bring uh, a, a woman between a, a, a one family and another uniter, but to reconcile you and me to God, to bring us into the God's family of blessing. Colossians 1, 19 through 22, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, on, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Now that's important New Testament language. It's bridal language. The servant brought Rebecca and presented her. Mission accomplished. Jesus brings us to the Father. Mission accomplished, Father. Holy is this bride. Blameless, because I've taken all the blame and all the shame. Above reproach, covered in a righteousness, a perfect robe of righteousness. Jesus presents us to the Father. He's the perfect servant because his life was surrendered in a way that was far greater than Rebecca's. He surrendered his life to the Father's will. You remember how this all happened, right? The night before the, the, the cross, what does Jesus say? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Rebecca had the assurance of wealth and power and influence. Jesus gives up all of that, leaving his glory and says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the perfect and true and better recipient of God's plan because his life is surrendered because he has a mission to fulfill the Father's plan, right? And that's good news for you and me. Because you know how much you and I can add to the work of Jesus? Nothing. You know what you contributed to your salvation? Zip. Nada. <laughs> Nothing. It's college football season. I'm telling you, it's not like Jesus was the, the star quarterback who threw the Hail Mary pass all the way down the field and then it's one yard short and then you're the special teams guy who brings it over the line. doesn't work that way. You were in the end zone and Jesus ran the ball all the way in. And you had nothing to do with it because you were laying on the other end dead. That's it. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, through faith we can receive the work of God's Spirit, making us alive bringing us to a place of salvation and lordship in Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit that He begins in us is the work He completes in us. Go to Galatians 3 and you'll see something very interesting. Galatians 3.14, last passage that we'll look at today, it says this, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham 
Okay, that's what was offered to Rebekah and to Laban. The, the blessing of God on Abraham's on offer. We get that blessing offer as Gentiles, as people who are alienated and exiles. How? Through faith, we receive the promised spirit of God, that he does a work. Isn't that good news? That's wonderful news. This is the best news in the world. And that's the news that we get to tell people about. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to pray. And then we're going to take just a few minutes as a body of believers to reflect on the goodness of God's gift through the Lord's table. But let's pray together. Father God, um, we recognize that so often, You are at work around us and we don't see it. We're busy with our own agendas, our own mentality, our own way of looking at things. We don't, we don't operate in life through faith, even though you've called us to, so forgive us of that. And Father, give us the boldness to act, to not be passive in faith, to commit our lives and surrender to complete the missions that you have given each and every one of us, the works that you have prepared beforehand in all eternity for those you call unto salvation. So Father, help us to do that. Let us live out of that reality. And in surrender, let us submit our lives to you and say, your will, not ours. Thank you for sending your son to do that which we could not have done and for sending your spirit to awaken us to these spiritual truths. Complete that work that you have begun in each and every one of us this week, today even. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.